very, very unhealthy experience. So for the last year, even before he bought us, he was complaining about the bots. He was complaining about the product. He was complaining about our bosses. He was saying that he's going to replace all of them. So it wasn't a pleasant experience up until he bought us. And from the minute he bought us, it moved from unpleasant to painful. It was basically zero communication. All of our managers got fired within the first 48 hours. I was in the middle of a conversation with our CFO where his Slack just stopped communicating with me. And my last message to him on Slack was, are you still there? And then I go to Twitter and I learned that he got fired and escorted out of the building by security. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. And I'm Yaniv. And I'm Amir. And today's episode is a little bit of a special one. We want to discuss something that's been in the news lately. And as I'm sure most of the audience knows, Elon Musk recently, kind of recently, it's been a little while now, purchased Twitter and has made a number of controversial moves, firing a lot of staff, changing the verified checkmark program to be a subscription thing. He's also recently basically shut down the developer platform, blocking a bunch of third-party Twitter apps from functioning. And to help this discussion along, we have a friend of mine and a former employee of Twitter who's recently been let go under Elon's new regime. And he was actually directly in charge of the Twitter developer platform. Amir, how's it going? Yeah, going really well. Other than getting fired with my entire team, I feel better being out than in. Yeah, I can only imagine. And we are super curious about what it was like under Elon Musk for the short period that you were there, how that transition occurred, and maybe even what you've learned about since you've left from former friends and employees there as well. We're super excited to have that conversation. Thank you for having me. Super exciting to share light with you all on this and to tell the story of the developer platform. So Amir, tell us a little about yourself before we dive into this. Just a thumbnail sketch of your background, the things you've worked on, and the thing you were doing at the end there with Twitter as well. Okay, awesome. So hi, everyone. My name is Amir Shvat, currently an angel investor. I've done about 35 angel investments in the last two years. And I'm also a venture partner at a fund called Innovation Endeavors, which is Eric Schmidt and Dror Bermans initiated that fund. Up until two weeks ago, I was the head of the Twitter developer platform. And all my life, I've been building developer platforms. So started out at Microsoft, working on SharePoint and Windows Mobile and onboarding developers on .NET and on the cloud. Then went to Google, worked on Chrome and cloud and Android all in DevRel, helping developers onboard on developer platforms. Then joined a small startup called Slack, joined when we had 50 developers on our waiting list and left when we had 250,000 weekly active developers on our platform. So you don't see my head, but I, I used to have hair before I started that. That was crazy. <laughs> then moved to another small startup called AWS, joined Twitch, which was acquired by AWS about five years ago and was the VP of the platform. So responsible for building the APIs for Twitch and connecting between Twitch and game developers like Ubisoft and Riot and Blizzard. 
then created Reshuffle, which was yet another developer platform. And that was acquired by Twitter two years ago, which brings me back to getting fired out of a cannon into the sun by Elon and his gang. I also authored two books. One of them is on building APIs that developers love, and the other one on building bots, building conversational interfaces, both with O'Reilly Media. That's a pretty incredible record, Amira. Chris and I have talked about developer platforms in the past. I was actually at Google as well. I think we maybe have had a little bit of overlap working on the Google Maps developer platform. And we know how powerful developer platforms are, but also that they're quite difficult to get right. And I think your hit rate's pretty incredible. So we're really keen to learn from you some of the tricks of the trade and what it takes to make a really successful developer platform. Thank you. I think it's a lot to do with luck. You need to choose a product that is really successful and a developer platform could just make it 10 times more successful. But if you don't have the core success of the core product like Maps, then the developer platform is as good as the underlying service. So I was lucky and worked with amazing people such as yourselves on platforms like this. So Chris, what is an API? So imagine a UI, a user interface, is buttons, labels, forms, and fields. That's the thing you as a human being interact with, the user interface. An API is an application programming interface. It's the way another computer system speaks to your software. They are the building blocks that allow software to be built on top of other software. Many people may not know the story of the Twitter developer platform. It's an interesting roller coaster ride of a story, right? When Twitter first came out, it was essentially a really rudimentary website and an SMS service. It had no mobile or desktop apps. And the Twitter API was the method by which third parties, people outside of Twitter, built really great clients for mobile, for desktop, and built a whole bunch of innovation on top of the Twitter service that really made it a functional and useful tool. Yes. And many of the features that we've grown to take for granted on Twitter, like retweets or photo support and so on, these were invented by third-party developers and later adopted by the core business, the core product suite, and turned into their own first-party mobile apps. In fact, I think some of the mobile apps were third-party apps that were purchased in, yep. in some cases. And That is true. I actually myself was involved in the Twitter developer ecosystem. I was building a business that involved aggregating and curating tweets. And there was all sorts of debates and arguments and thrash that later emerged around this API. Who would have access to the fire hose and what kind of apps were allowed to get built? And is the API officially supported or not supported and supported for what use cases and for what reasons? And under the tenure of Biz Stone and Jack Dorsey and Narag, they really ebbed and flowed in terms of Twitter's relationship with that API and their relationship with the developer ecosystem. And it caused all manner of <laughs> angst and frustration and broken hearts over the years. And, you know, I actually had the same job that you had at Uber, right? The head of developer platform. And, and that was how we met. And I remember saying to my team, the Slack developer platform is the gold standard. And the Twitter developer platform is the anti-pattern. Exactly what we don't want to do. I'd love to learn from you maybe early on after you joined, what did you learn about that story? Like, why did some of that angst creep into the org? What was the fear, uncertainty, doubt, the thrash? Where was that coming from prior to you joining? And what story did you tell in order to change the narrative and to change the behavior, at least try to change it before Elon Musk came in? So I think you got it exactly right. It was ups and downs the entire history of the company. 
Jack Dorsey really wanted Twitter to be an open protocol from the beginning. He wanted an open API that is not monetizable, that helps third-party and first-party clients create a public conversation. That was the vision. And developers from the early start created a lot of value on top of the platform. From TweetDeck to even the API, big portions of the API came through an acquisition of a company. So a lot of the aspects of the platform came from a thriving ecosystem. And then when the company IPO'd, they got a lot of pressure to monetize and ads were not working. So they turned to monetize the API. They closed the API, they closed third-party apps because they were afraid that they will cannibalize the monetization on ads. And they started selling the API and adding a lot of quota and turning it into an enterprise business. It was an enterprise business that was successful and it saved Twitter when ads were not working and the IPO was pressuring Twitter to generate revenue, but it was really poisonous or even toxic to the platform. Developers were blocked. Time to onboarding moved from seconds to days. They added a lot of manual review. So you couldn't generate tokens very easily. You had to explain your use cases. So they moved from an open platform to a closed platform. They added a lot of hurdles. And basically when I came to Twitter as a partner, just like yourself as a developer from the outside, I was asked by the Twitter team to meet Jack Dorsey and the rest of the leadership and give them a piece of my mind. And I'm originally Israeli, and now I live in America, but I'm originally Israeli and we're very blunt. So I gave them a piece of my mind. I told them it sucks. I told them that the API is broken. I told them that it's really hard to onboard. I told them that their partnership strategy is broken. And to paraphrase Ned Siegel, who was our CFO, he said, you told us that it's broken enough, so we bought your startup to fix it. So they basically acquired Reshuffle for our developer expertise. And the vision that we came to Bruce, the chief product officer, and the rest of the leadership was, we can turn Twitter into a developer platform in earnest. Not just an API for reading and writing out of Twitter, but also the ability to create mini apps in the conversation. Wouldn't it be awesome if you can create your own mini app so when you listen to your favorite song on Spotify, you can share that with your followers and have a shared listening experience. Wouldn't it be awesome if you can curate your own timeline and share it with your friends and maybe even monetize it? Because maybe your Ferrari and like sports car timeline that curates the best timeline around sports cards will probably monetize a lot better than any other generic timeline. So we envision a world where developers are not just first-class citizens in the usage of the API, but first-class citizens in the Twitter UI itself. And we started building that. And for the first year after the acquisition, we were on track. And then came Elon and just like trumped over all of that. But we can talk about that later. Amir, you talked about how Jack was really on board with this Jack Dorsey and the head of product. And in a previous episode about developer platforms, we've talked about just how scary the developer platform can be when it's built on top of a consumer tool, right? Where you're opening up part of the tool to third-party developers. And I imagine, because this happened to me at Uber, where the CEO or the CPO might be on board, but the rest of the product management org and the rest of the engineering org and the rest of everybody else are still very, very scared of this idea. Yeah. And so I'm curious what techniques 
you had to use to try to build consensus and draw down the temperature on that fear to make progress at Twitter or at other developer platforms and keep that forward momentum going? It's a great question. At Slack, it was part of our DNA, which is the best thing that you could ask for. Stuart Butterfield said, hey, everything would be open up as an API. The API will never be monetizable. We will always have an open developer platform. That is a core part of the three pillars of Slack. At Twitch, it was always a conversation with the salespeople that thought the API would cannibalize our ad revenue. They, they were right to some extent because some developers were using the API to optimize their ad spend and to get like, who are the streamers that are most active? Who are the streamers that we should spend money on? And who are the streamers that we shouldn't? So it was always a conversation at Twitter. It was a matter of like, there were people that did not think that the API is the right way to do. They thought that developers should not be first-class citizens. They thought that developers are a major risk. They thought that the API was a major vector of attack for bots. By the way, it was not. Again, geeking out, Chrome automation, unfortunately, was the biggest attack vector on bots on Twitter. So the API was actually pretty safe compared to other attack vectors like web automation. I resonate so much with this. It makes me want to cry. <laughs> I hear you. This is precisely what I'm asking about is, you know, what do you do when the company culture, it's not in their DNA? You know, what techniques have you found or what arguments have you found that were the most compelling? Because I think this is a good segue into the Elon Musk discussion, which is what techniques failed or worked with him? Or did you even have a chance to try your wizardry with him? What techniques worked prior to the Musk regime? So prior to Elon, it was all about convincing PMs and stakeholders that the developers will supercharge their product. An example would be we work with the Spaces API and we talk to them about like, what is their core pain? And they said, people can't find the right Twitter space. Uh, Twitter space is just like we're having right now. For those of you who don't know, it's the ability to have a conversation, a voice conversation on Twitter. And they talked about the fact that people can't discover the right space, the right interesting space for them. So we work with them, with developers, to create a flow where developers could build discovery mechanisms, could search for the right space, could build directory of spaces, could help match you with the right space. So the idea is like, find the thing the product managers really care about and harness the developer productivity and harness the API to supercharge that shortcoming. That is one strategy. The other strategy is to paint the future of where you think Twitter could be. When I told PMs that I can turn Twitter into an operating system for developers and show them the visuals of what we could do, they got excited as customers. They got excited because they wanted to use the products that we promised them developers can build. And that was another powerful way to show internally what developers could do. I'd actually like to ask a more pointed and controversial version of that question, which is you talk about having it in your DNA and you're speaking to culture and basically the culture as imprinted by the CEO and by the founding team. So my controversial question is, if it's not in the company's DNA, is it a good idea to do a developer platform at all? Or do you 
over the long term end up facing these same sorts of misaligned incentives that cause developer platforms to be curtailed and shut down and for developers to be burned, as we've seen with Twitter, but as we've also seen with Facebook, to a certain extent, I know with Google Maps and many other developer platforms built on top of products where one would argue that that love for the strategy and for that approach is not baked into the organization's DNA. So I would say it depends, but I would still opt for building an API rather than not building an API. The idea is that building a platform is expensive. You need developer relations, you need developer marketing, you need BD people, you need engineers, you need designers. Building an API is much more cost efficient. So I would say that building an API, you should look at it as building any other interface into your service. APIs are a great way to connect between your service and other services. And I think that that will be a table stake as we move forward. I will be extremely surprised if in 10 years we will have a single service that will not have an API. In the healthcare, in the government, anywhere, every service online will have an API. Now, a developer platform is a much different investment. A developer platform means that you rely on developers to drive a business case. Like an Android, you would rely on developers to make Android better, the phones better, more sticky, more useful. That is a bet that you need to make only when you're willing to bet on it in earnest and for the long run and willing to spend a lot of time before it is successful. And I think you should either do it in earnest or not do it at all. Doing it half-ass or doing it when it's not your core part of your DNA is painful, expensive, and probably a bad idea. So if you're Stuart Butterfield and you say, this is one of my three pillars, then you should definitely do it. And by the way, there was a crazy correlation between paying customers and the usage of the API. When I left, 97% of Slack paying customers were using the platform. That is crazy correlation. It's not causation, but it's as close as I can get without proving causation. But if it's not your core business, I would not open up platform there. It's interesting because maybe you'd agree with me, Amir. I think the most interesting companies that become enmeshed into the fabric of the world and of the internet need to build APIs and developer platforms of one kind or another. And so I would say if your ambition is to become that important next unicorn tentpole brand, I think developer platforms and APIs are just so, so essential to that. On this topic of incentives and mindset, I think I read this quote from someone at Microsoft talking about the fact that what makes a platform a platform is when the majority of the value generated on that platform is actually captured by the third parties, by the developers, rather than by the platform provider itself. That is definitely the case. It's maybe easy to forget because it's such an old company. It is one of the OGs of having developers built into their DNA. But if that's the case, that a platform needs to have a majority of its value going to third parties, there's this danger where if it's not baked into the DNA, over time, that value going to third parties starts to look like an opportunity to claw it back into the mothership. And of course, we've seen that Twitter at Facebook, I think were one of the worst at that in terms of cannibalizing their own developers. Yeah, we got it exactly right. In at the early days of the .NET boom, developers building on SharePoint were making $10 for every dollar of SharePoint sold. That means that developers' revenue was an order of magnitude bigger than Microsoft revenue out of that product, which is mind-blowing. 
if you think about it. But if you think about it a little deeper, I would say that you would probably say the same thing on Android. The value generated for developers at large, whether it's even Uber and Lyft and all the rest of the amazing apps, Spotify are making probably a lot more than Google is making on Android itself because it's an open source platform. So I think the developers making a lot of the value is baked into a developer platform, which is good. That's the intention. That's the promise that you would give developers. But you're also right on the risk. And the risk is that most PMs who are not core to the platform, their job is to capture value again and again and again. And when they see developers create value, they just try to capture it. And they use very, very reasonable rationale. They say, oh, this feature would be much, much better if it's integrated into the UI. I'm always focusing on the value to the customer, right? So they use very strong rationale. And the way I try to solve this is through my theory around lanes. The idea is to have three lanes, the white lane, the gray lane, and the black lane. The black lane is what you want developers never to do. You don't want developers to build viruses for Android. You don't want developers to steal contact lists from Android and sell them on third-party black markets, right? All of these are things that I've seen developers do, by the way. So you put that in the black lane. That goes into your terms of service. You must not do the following things. Then there is the white lane. The white lane is what you actually want developers to do. You actively tell your PMs, never built this because developers are building it. So Android will never compete with, let's say, Angry Birds because they want games to be built on Android. So that's the white lane. The white lane is what we want developers to build. And then there's the gray lane. The gray lane are developers building power features into the platform where it's reasonable to say that the company progresses, a PM will turn it into an internal product, right? So for example, Discovery for Spaces is an example where if the product team for Spaces did their job right in two years, Discovery will be solved internally so that developers are solving a problem right now, but they could risk cannibalization in the future. Every time we had a Google and a Google I.O. event, we basically killed two startups and created a platform for another 10 startups. And that's okay as long as developers know that they are in the gray lane. So if you are very clear about these three lanes, you can build trust with developers in the long run. Amir, this is really, really awesome. And as I said, really resonates with myself and Yanev. And we've gone actually very, very deep on almost exactly these subjects in a previous episode. So please go back and check that out, the episode about developer platforms. I wanted to make sure that we have a chance to rotate over to exactly what happened when Elon Musk joined before we run out of time with you today. So let's maybe rotate over to that question. Okay. I'm curious first, what did you imagine might happen when you started hearing about Elon Musk buying the company? Obviously, there was a little bit of a period there where he tried to get out of the deal. What was the internal vibe? What was the internal chatter? And maybe specifically for developer platform, what did you hope would happen? The vibe was not positive from the beginning. The problem was that we've learned about all the things that were happening on Twitter. There was very little internal communication because even our execs did not know what was happening. Elon was basically managing the entire conversation and the entire engagement by tweeting about it. So think about waking up in the morning, 
looking into what's new in my company. And instead of going to your execs or even the media, you have to go into Twitter to see if Elon is joining the board, not joining the board, buying the company, not buying the company. Our entire existence was learning about what's happening in the company on Twitter, which is also, it's, it's very powerful, but it's also kind of a sucky experience. A lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubts in the last year. From the beginning, Elon was not very directional. First of all, he wanted to join the board. And then he tweeted that joining the board is a waste of his time, so he's not going to join the board. And then he decided that he's going to buy the company. And then he tweeted that he doesn't want to buy the company. And then he started a fight against all of our execs, trashing them online, starting with the female execs and then moving to Parag and moving to the rest of all the execs, trashing them online in front of the entire company. Very, very unhealthy experience. So for the last year, even before he bought us, he was complaining about the bots. He was complaining about the product. He was complaining about our bosses. He was saying that he's going to replace all of them. So it wasn't a pleasant experience up until he bought us. And from the minute he bought us, it moved from unpleasant to painful. It was basically zero communication. All of our managers got fired within the first 48 hours. I was in the middle of a conversation with our CFO where his Slack just stopped communicating with me. And my last message to him on Slack was, are you still there? And then I go to Twitter and I learned that he got fired and escorted out of the building by security. So the entire time was uncertainty and doubt until we all got fired. We had a lot of hopes. Elon was talking about the everything app, which is basically what we were building. But when he came in, there was very, very little curiosity or communication, which is what you usually see from M&As. Usually in M&As, you see a lot of over-communication and over-synchronization and over-empathy because everybody's like, don't know what will happen. And what we've seen is over-bullying and under-communication consistently until we all got fired. Amir, what do you personally attribute this to? Like from my perception about Elon Musk, he's kind of moved from this weird eccentric nerdy guy that would make weird off-color comments or observations to like full-on intentional troll. Yeah. <laughs> and he went from, I want to buy Twitter to I don't want to buy Twitter. And maybe he decided that the valuation had plummeted or something, or it would be a bigger headache than he needed. But what do you personally attribute this weird behavior in the last year or two years to? I can only default to the vanity, which is like our core vice as humans. When Elon started this, he had 60 million followers. Now he has closer to 120 million followers. There is a big cohort of people that are just everything that he says are amplifying it in a negative and toxic way. I think you get addicted to that. You get addicted to the attention. You get addicted to the trolling. And unfortunately, it is rewarded by a vast majority of people who like to see buildings burn. So basically what you see is the public bullying of people generates a lot of pain, but also pleasure in people who likes to see this. And that's what I think happened. So his stated goal to solve some of humanity's biggest problems, right? Multiplanetary life and climate change and all this kind of stuff. You think this almost an addiction to attention is what's sent him down this other road. So I'm not an expert about addictions or a psychologist, but I think that what I've seen is that he was continuously bullying people inside Twitter 
and outside Twitter and enjoying the attention. So empirically speaking, that's what I've seen. And I think that's a tendency of a bully from high school. You remember the bullies, they enjoy where all the kids rally around them. I can't do an analysis, but I can do a comparison to other places in life. For the sake of argument, I'd like to not take the other side, but ask the question, right, that some people are saying is like, okay, Elon Musk has always had certain personality tendencies. When I was at the Google developer platform, we did some work with Tesla and, you know, he was already doing the sort of Darth Vader thing where suddenly people would just disappear because they displeased him. And yet, of course, Tesla has had a world-changing impact. SpaceX is having a world-changing impact. And so people say, well, maybe he's not the nicest guy, but he's a genius and he gets things done. And all this stuff with Twitter might look crazy, but maybe he's playing four-dimensional chess and we just don't understand the genius of the moves that he's making. What do you say to that? Like, do you see a future in which Twitter under Elon Musk could emerge stronger? I don't believe that there's multi-dimensional chess that he's playing. I think that he got into a deal that he shouldn't have. I think he stated that. So he paid a lot with zero contingency and zero due diligence. And I think he made multiple mistakes. And I think when you downsize a company, that's okay. And firing and closing uh, elements of a company, I've done that when I manage companies. But there's a way of doing things. And there's doing things the right way and there's breaking the law. And now a lot of Twitter employees are suing him. That's not effective. So what I'm saying is that I haven't seen data or evidence for him being an effective leader. And I don't think that that's a way to win multidimensional chess by not doing things effectively. To answer your second question, I think that Twitter might survive despite him. I think that networks are a very strong thing. They're very hard to build and they're very hard to destroy. So if you remember MySpace, it survived a long time until Facebook came. We all had MySpace pages for a very long time. I remember still maintaining mine. So I think until we have a very solid alternative, and I think things like Blue Sky could be an alternative in the future, but until we have a strong alternative, Twitter will be strong because humans require the public conversation. For my part, my theory is that it's a series of things, right? He got into the deal with a great amount of hubris, with really poor timing, right? The valuations of everything imploded. I think he's confused his talent at hard engineering with social engineering. I think he's very good at hard engineering and not very good at social engineering. And Twitter and social networks are all about social engineering. I think it's now an albatross around his neck and around his brand. And I think it's going to have an enormous impact on his ancillary projects. And I think part of his attitude right now is a little bit of a somewhat reasonable pushback on the radical left, but in a unreasonable and bull in a china shop sort of way. And some of it is that he's actually bought into the radical right. And I think it's a combination of all of these things and the pressure and the exhaustion and the drinking your own Kool-Aid and on and on and on. My personal opinion about Twitter is that it has, Twitter the product has survived perpetual disastrous mismanagement by Twitter, the business. <laughs> Twitter has almost never had good leadership. It's actually the little engine that could, the core idea is so good and the network effect is so strong. But I think Elon has so thoroughly abused it and abused the most important users on it. This is the biggest swing yet at trying to kill that poor little product from the inside out.
I agree. And the last part, which really breaks my heart, is the last two weeks where he killed the uh, platform, closing the API access to third-party clients. That is basically what I told Parag and Ned and Jack Dorsey for a long time, is that Twitter has one more chance. If you tell developers that you're going to fix something and then you don't fix it and break it again, you have zero chance of them trusting you after the fact. So I think for my geeky professional way of looking at it, the fact that he's killing the developer platform and taking away developers' livelihood by killing third-party clients is one of the worst moves of that takeover. And again, done with such a lack of grace, right? In the same way as he's abused his employees and fired his employees, he has now without even the smallest amount of grace, has shut down the developer platform. And that's just happened in the past week. So this is actually hot off the press, really. Twitter shut down access from one moment to the next without providing any advance warning. Without telling developers why. So their tokens got revoked without even an email. That is insane. That is like, that is not even like not doing your job right. That's downright bullying your ecosystem. Well, it's, it's killing your ecosystem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's essentially bullied the creators, right? He's eliminated their yep. blue checkmark exclusivity. And instead of partnering with them to create content and monetization tools, and he's now killed the developers. I don't really know what he thinks he's going to do next. Perhaps to wrap up this part of the episode, Amir, yeah. what have you heard since leaving? I imagine you have some friends left or you have some back channels that you're part of. What's the latest scuttlebutt from inside Twitter? Everyone that works at Twitter right now that I know is either there because they have work visa or financial issue that's blocking them from leaving or is looking for a new job. The way it was managed with the letter of like, you have to sign yes to work radical weekends and nights or else you're fired has really changed the DNA of the company. So everyone I know is either looking for a job or has already left. And there's a lot of great people in Twitter so I encourage, if you have a startup and you want to hire good people, go and try to poach. And also the same thing for like now Facebook and Microsoft also fired a bunch of good people. So I think this is a great opportunity for startups to hire awesome people from the market. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm actually friends with Esther Crawford and her partner, Bob Coward. Bob was at Uber and my peer when I was there. And she's somehow become the poster child for the new Twitter and apparently the Elon Musk whisperer. And I'm so desperate to get her on the show and get her perspective. But of course, she can't speak while being part of the company. But yeah, I'm so interested about the people who are thriving there and who are somehow riding the Musk wave. One thing that is interesting is that Twitter under Dorsey, you can easily criticize the company in Twitter, which was very unique because when I worked at Microsoft, when I worked at Google, you couldn't say what you really think on public channels and represent just yourself. And Dorsey was really encouraging that. He was encouraging tweets to be themselves on the public conversation. And that has gone away. And that is really sad. So your point around like she can't talk right now outside and represent herself, that was not the case in the Twitter that I joined. In the Twitter that I joined, you could represent yourself and be yourself on Twitter. And if the company did something wrong, you could call it out. And that's no longer the case. Again, this is not exactly trying to extract a positive spin from it, but I think indirectly, again, Elon has made his mark on the broader ecosystem. And what I mean by that is there is a change happening 
throughout tech. You mentioned the Microsoft layoffs, the Meta layoffs, the Google layoffs that happened in the past week, and also the way some of those were executed. And, you know, that email, the extremely hardcore email where you had to reply yes. And I think I won't say that Elon was the cause or the prime mover, but he definitely was ahead of the zeitgeist here, right? Saying, okay, these big tech companies have become a little bit too complacent, a little bit too comfortable, and the culture is going to change. I think there are both positives and negatives to that, but in the same way that Tesla has prompted a transition to electric cars and so on, I get the feeling that some of the things that Elon did so gracelessly at Twitter are actually having quite a large ripple effect throughout the tech ecosystem and others are emulating at least some of that mindset, if not the actual tactics of how things were done. I agree that there's always pendulum and like too much hiring and then getting rid of people in the company. And we're now in the firing stage, but I think there's ways of doing it in a positive way. I've been through reduction of forces. I had to do reduction of forces in my startups. And I encourage everyone who's listening here to do it in a non-bullying, empathetic, and kind way that drives your developers and your engineers to recommend and come back to you when you hire again and to recommend you as a leader when you come back again. So I think that is the case for a lot of my friends at Google that got fired and a lot of people in Microsoft. I don't think that that's the case for Twitter or the Twitter that I experienced. Yeah. And it's also important to note that some of this is connected to overhiring on the operations side during COVID. Yeah. And some of this is connected to optics. I've actually heard a founder say to me that a VC partner said to him that he cannot take the deal to the investment committee unless he's fired people because it's now seen as you have to have had a riff through the downturn to show that you're somehow disciplined and taking decisive action. And this is a founder who was bootstrapped and running an incredibly disciplined hiring process. And these firings, in some cases, are extremely incremental and have absolutely no meaningful effect at the bottom line of a Google or a Microsoft. And so there's really a game being played here of both the media ignoring comparables through COVID and these major companies pretending to do something or just trimming their sales a little bit and it being a little bit overblown. Yeah. Some companies are doing it in an existential way, but really some of this is a bit of a theater. I agree. And as a investor, I will never tell a founder that. So Amir, thank you so much for your time. You mentioned that you're doing angel investing and you're a partner at a VC fund. Tell the audience what else you're up to and maybe what you might go do next in terms of a full-time operational role. I want to invest in developer platforms and open and awesome developer tools. And that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. I hope I want to also write a book and I want to travel the world. So right now I want to expand my 35 investments and help them survive the winter that is coming, but also look at generative AI and how does that help developer tools and how do you create developer ecosystems for the next wave of application innovation? So that's where I'm going to focus. I'm going to focus on more angel investment, more venture capital, and helping my portfolio build delightful products that are open and empathetic and do not suck. And if people want to follow you on social media or any of the content that you might produce, and perhaps we have founders listening who are building developer platforms who might be interested in getting in touch, how can folks reach you? I'm very, very social. So they could connect to me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Mastodon, on News.Post, which is the new network from the founder of Waze, Noam Bardeen. 
Just Google me. I'm very searchable and very approachable. The irony of connecting to you on Twitter. <laughs> Let's go with Mastodon. That's the, that's the right one to connect you on. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amir, for joining us. It's been really great. It's really great to see you again as well. It's been too long. And Same here, my friend. And thank you for listening to the show as always. If you'd like to help us out a little bit, it would be fantastic if you could share the episode with your friends, fellow founders, investors, and operators at startups. It helps us grow the show and help more founders along the way. Otherwise, Yanev, great as always. Yep. Thanks, Chris. And thanks, Amira. It was great to meet you. And, you know, really one of the greats of the developer ecosystem world. So it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you for having me. Great conversation. 